Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Women already face barriers in the workplace, like wage gaps and fewer opportunities for promotion. And women are more likely than men to drop out of work to care for children or relatives. Today, where we live, we continue the Future of Work series by examining how the pandemic has exacerbated gender disparities. As states reopen, will women be able to recover the jobs they lost? We'll also talk about how families are deciding which partner takes on more childcare responsibilities while working from home. And we look at how women hold the majority of frontline essential jobs. And we want to hear from you today. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Jocelyn Fry, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, who specializes on women's economic security and women's rights. Jocelyn, welcome to our show. Well, thank you. Great to be here. Uh, We know that women make up nearly half of uh, American uh, workforce, but I'm wondering when we look at the work situation for women, are they often uh, the economic drivers of their families, especially if they're in communities of color? Absolutely. Um, You know, women, generally speaking, um, have increasingly become uh, really integral to the economic stability and security of their families. And that is particularly true for women of color. Um, You know, women of color are definitely the economic engines for their families. And if you look at the data, what we know is that um, women of color um, who are moms um, are more likely than white women, for example, to be breadwinners. Um, And that means, you know, either providing the sole or primary economic support for their families. Um, So we know that they're they're really critical to their families. And um, if anything impacts uh, their ability to earn uh, wages, um, that that hurts not only them, but uh, the stability of their families as well. We've been dealing with the shutdown for about three months now, at least here in Connecticut. I know some states are a little bit further in reopening. But what does the data tell us in terms of how women have been impacted, especially with unemployment? Um, You know, I think it tells us a lot, um, both about um, uh, the impact of the pandemic and also where we need to go in terms of future workplace policy. Um, People have coined uh, the pandemic as the she session, and that's for a reason. Women have lost uh, the majority of the jobs. Um, um, There's been, you know, incredible job loss, as you well know, um, uh, over 19 million jobs, even with the the little bump that we um, saw last week. Um, And at the same time, um, women of color have, uh, in some instances, borne a disproportionate burden uh, 
um, the unemployment numbers um, shows sharp increases for all workers, obviously. Um, but uh, some of the highest numbers are for women of color. Uh, black women were the only um, group uh, to experience an actual increase in unemployment um, in May, uh, uh, a little, uh, about 16.5%. Um, but Latinas also um, have very high unemployment and white women. So what we see is um, a tremendous impact on the employment um, stability of women. And, you know, at the moment, a majority of women over the age of 20 are not working, and that's not good. Mm. Again, you're hearing Jocelyn Frisch on Zoom today, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. As we talk about how this pandemic uh, is exacerbating uh, gender inequality in the workplace, uh, we just heard Jocelyn talk about how women have lost the majority of jobs uh, since the pandemic began, um, especially impacting women of color. Jocelyn, tell us more about those particular jobs uh, where women, again, have lost uh, their employment and you know what particular sector are we talking about? Um, well, you know, the, um, in many ways, um, they're the sectors that, um, you know, I think a lot of people will recognize leisure and hospitality, food and accommodations. Um, those um, sectors have been hard hit. Um, there, you know, are restaurants, um, you know, hotels, you know, the travel industry. Um, a lot of those um, um, sort of day-to-day uh, industries that, you know, people are used to, we know have uh, largely uh, ceased um, to operate in a pandemic where everybody has been required to stay at home. Those industries are overwhelmingly uh, dominated by female workers um, and in some instances disproportionately um, um, again, women of color, it's, you know, your, your servers and your restaurants, um, the folks who clean uh, your rooms and hotels, um, those industries have been enormously impacted and experienced a lot of job loss. And, you know, that's part of the reason that we see these disproportionate numbers um, uh, for women and women of color uh, in terms of their unemployment. Again, you can join our conversation here on Where We Live, the number 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when we talk about uh, women of color, uh, Jocelyn, uh, again, dealing with these disproportionate rates of layoffs, I mean, how does that also uh, you know, talk more about the racial wealth gap? So when we look at families across our country, uh, depending on their backgrounds, uh, white families may have more savings than, say, black or Latino. Latinx families, and then how that breaks down. Um, you're absolutely right, and I, you know, I think one of the important things about sort of analyzing the impact of the pandemic is understanding where we started, and where we started was not necessarily um, an equitable place in terms of uh, access to resources for families of color. You know, as I said, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Black women and let. Latina uh, mothers, Black and Latina mothers in particular, um, are more likely to be breadwinners for their families. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, they uh, are also more likely to earn lower wages. They're more likely to be in um, minimum wage jobs or low wage jobs. Um, They're often single heads of household. Um, So all of those factors are um, impacting, um, uh, you know, where they 
where they sit economically and their ability to um, uh, weather this uh, economic crisis. And on top of that, you know, we often fo focus on wages, but as you mm -hmm. point out, this is also about resources that people may have to tap in moments of emergency. And what we know from data on the wealth gap is that, you know, Black and Latino families in particular um, are far less likely to have the same sorts of assets as white their white counterparts. If you look at data specifically around single women, uh, Black single women, um, uh, their estimated wealth uh, is about $200. For Latin ex-women, it's about uh, uh, $100. In comparison to white women, it's a little over $15,000. Um, and white men, it's even higher. So uh, what we have to understand is that the pandemic has exacerbated disparities mm -hmm. that already existed, that uh, heightened the economic stresses that many families of color faced. And now we have a moment where we have massive unemployment um, and even additional stresses. And so when we talk about what we need to do to fix it, we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are existing disparities that we need to be responsive to. You can join our conversation. We especially want to hear from working mothers, how you've been trying to juggle both work responsibilities and uh, child care responsibilities, especially as schools have been closed uh, for some time. That number again, 888-720-9677. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jennifer is calling in from Hartford. Jennifer, what's your comment or question? Hi, um, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I'm Jenny Sedman, and I'm the executive director of the Aurora Women and Girls Foundation, and we've been working hard to get just this kind of information out about the impact that the economic and health crisis is going to have on women and girls, particularly in greater Hartford. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we're really going to have to center women and girls when we think about economic recovery, and that we need to think about also the huge role that um, women small business owners, particularly women of color, play in Connecticut's economy. Um, we've seen um, for the first time in Connecticut women's unemployment applications past men and also a startling decre decrease in the number of new business applications. So I think we really all have to call on um, our local and state governments to really center women as we work on recovery plans going forward. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for calling in today here on Where We Live. Uh, you can as well, 888-720-9677. And you can, again, find us on social media. Just search uh, Where We Live. Uh, when we think about uh, the number of women who filed for unemployment, uh, Jocelyn Fry, uh, now that states are slowly reopening, Connecticut's about to start its phase two reopening next week. Are we seeing that women in the labor market are benefiting from getting their jobs back or has it been slow going? Um, it's, you know, it's been slow going. I, I think we have a ways to go to really evaluate um, uh, uh, how quickly folks will come back. What we know from the early data and, you know, understanding that this is early data, but, you know, at least based on the data that uh 
the Department of Labor released last week, um, the majority of the jobs uh, that have come back have gone to men. Um, uh, a little under half of those jobs have been um, um, uh, gained by women. And so when you, you know, I referred to the she session in terms of jobs job loss and you know at the that initial data that you know shows more of a, a he recovery um, mm. so to speak um, but we have a long ways to go um, and what we know historically um, if you look back to 2008 and 2009 and the great recession is that it took longer for women uh, to regain jobs um, and particularly women of color um, so uh, we have a long ways to go, and your caller is quite quite right. As we think about policy interventions, we really do need to center the experiences of women, and particularly women of color, to assess what sorts of interventions are really needed. Hmm. Uh, women of color, again, overrepresented in these essential jobs, uh, these r- jobs that put them at higher risk of getting sick in this pandemic, uh, Jocelyn. Uh, joining us now on the phone is Carlene Wonder. She's been a personal care assistant or PCA for 11 years here in Connecticut. She's from New Haven, and she has a client in Ansonia. Carlene, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning. A pleasant good morning to you. Thank you for having me. So tell me more about your work as a personal care assistant. Again, this is an essential job. Um, You're helping uh, clients with physical and mental disabilities. Uh, During the pandemic, how did you prepare to keep doing your work, Carlene? It was, for me, um, my my consumer's power of attorney. Um, She was able to provide me with PPE. But... Most of my colleagues, which is about 10,000 of us, and we have about 600 consumers, never had the adequate amount of PPE. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was difficult for them to do their job because of a lack of PPE. We are... Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead, Carlene. Yes, we are viewed. We are viewed through a racially um, stereotyped um, lens, where we are, we are basically women of color, black and brown, immigrants. We they, we are viewed as low intellect, having low intellectual capacity, and we are low income workers. So we are not given adequate PPE to work with our consumers. And so mm-hmm. we find that we are we are exposed, we are we are at risk because we are because during the pandemic we are here, we are exposed to the virus. And we need to have that PPE so that we can effectively execute our jobs by taking care of our consumers taking care of ourselves, and also taking care of our families. So um, because of that, we keep asking for PPE, but we are, not, we are being promised, but we do not adequately, mm. we, are, we are not getting adequate amount in order to do our jobs. Carlene, when you Carlene, when you say that you've been asking for PPE, who are you asking specifically, and do you feel like the state agencies uh, understand your where you're coming from? 
the state and those waiver um, department programs, re D DDS and DSS, mm. those are, and, and the state, which covers those um, areas. Uh, mm. We are not able, there's also a community health program as well. And many of those consumers who use those programs are not getting adequate amount of PPE so that they can be safely cared for. Mm. Uh, Carlene, how has this Im impacted your relationship with your family? Because again, you were able to get PPE, but uh, so many of your colleagues who um, were not able to have the proper uh, personal equipment to protect themselves, do you worry about um, whether you would be in contact with a client who may uh, make you sick and then you would bring it home to your family? Of course, and um, it makes you feel so stressed and exhausted due to the lack of PPE um, distribution. And um, we realize that we, we deal with this racial um, stereotype because when we ask for these PPEs, we are being prejudged as being unable to develop a good relationship with our consumers and so we are seen as complainers, troublemakers, and uh, we are told that we are not civil in asking questions. And um, those are some of the ways in which we are being prejudged. Mm -hmm. So these, these biases really leave us numb. It, it, this feeling of frustration and anger in response to repeated racial incidents you know, it helps to heighten the stress you face and it diminishes your well-being. Mm -hmm. I wanted uh, our other guest, Jocelyn Fry, to respond to what you've been telling us, Carlene. Uh, Jocelyn, uh, I mentioned uh, that she's a personal care assistant. I believe home care workers are almost 90% women. And again, disproportionately, many women of color are doing this work, Jocelyn. Well, absolutely. And I so appreciate your guests sort of giving us um, sort of a, a, a real world understanding of uh, the work and the really important work that she does. And, you know, what we know um, historically and up to the present day is that as, as important as caregiving is to the functioning of our families, we have a long history of devaluing the care and the people who do that care. Um, as you point out, the work is done overwhelmingly by women, uh, disproportionately by women of color, um, you know, areas like um, personal care aides, home health aides are disproportionately Unfortunately, you know, black and Latina women. Um, and uh, what we know is that people always expect them to be there um, mm -hmm. to do the work, um, but they don't get paid, um, not nearly what the value is of that work. Um, and we have a long history, an unfortunate history of stereotypes about women of color that are rooted in our history. Um, that often means that while we expect folks to do care, we don't actually pay much attention to their own caregiving needs, whether they have families, whether they need time off, whether they need things like PPE um, to make sure that they're safe. We just expect them to be there and serve us. Um, and so I think the pandemic has really illustrated the, the, the weaknesses uh, and the gaps in the protections that are available to workers who are truly essential workers. 
I also think it's troubling uh, three months into this uh, pandemic here in Connecticut that people like Carlene are still unable to get adequate PPE. Uh, Carlene, when I mentioned that you're a personal care assistant, for people who may not be uh, aware of the duties that you have helping your client, these are very personal uh, interactions you're having with your client, helping them with toileting, eating. Uh, this is really problematic if, if you, know, you, don't, you don't have the proper PPE, as you mentioned, your colleagues uh, dealing with that issue. Yes, and we are told by um, the public health department that we are, um, the consumers do not have to notify us if they have symptoms or they have the COVID, they are positive for COVID. And we are also told to reuse the gloves that we have mm. used on our consumers, which is a public health issue. But I, I, I reckon from what they have been saying to us is that they don't think that we are intellectually capable of understanding that in situations like these, we are walking into our own death sentence. Uh, again, uh, Carlene, I'm sorry to hear that you know this is the situation that many personal care assistants that you know are dealing, are going through. Uh, of the personal care assistants that you know of in the state, uh, do you know of people who've gotten uh, COVID-19? Yes, there are a number of home health care workers who are presently um, um, battling with COVID. Mm. But you've been able- in particular... There's one in particular whom I know, and she had problems. Um, she didn't have enough PPE to work with, and um, she was out of out of a job with no food, no money to spend to buy her basic needs. And I think um, on one occasion when she tried to get, she only got fifteen dollars. Mm and was told by a social worker that she could use that to buy eggs, which was so disrespectful. Mm. Well, Carlene, we appreciate you calling into the show again to tell us uh, what what you and others are experiencing in this pandemic. Uh, we hope to, uh, to, to check in on this uh, in the near future, but we appreciate you calling in today on the show. Carlene Wonder, again, a personal care assistant for 11 years here in our state. Carlene, thank you. Thank you for having me. We're going to continue our conversation after the break. Uh, With me on Zoom is Jocelyn Fry, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, focusing on women's economic security and women's rights. We're going to continue talking about gender disparities, especially uh, being worsened in this pandemic. Now, how has your family divided up childcare and work responsibilities? Are you a woman who's decided to give up working or is thinking about it so you can better handle family obligations? Again, we want to hear from you today. 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Does this uh, sentence from a recent New York Times column resonate with you? When work and child care obligations come into unresolvable conflict, a pattern often develops. 
One parent says no to work and prioritizes childcare, while the other says no to childcare and prioritizes work. Over time, whose career is most affected and how will this pandemic worsen gender inequality? With us today on Where We Live uh, by Zoom is Jocelyn Fry, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, uh, where she specializes on women's economic security and women's rights. Uh, Jocelyn, we mentioned earlier that women make up nearly half the workforce in the U.S. Uh, Pew says that 60% of married couples with kids under 18 are households where both parents work. But when it comes to caregiving, uh, again, what are we seeing in terms of how uh, these responsibilities are divided up? Well, what we know, um, and we knew this before the pandemic, is that women um, uh, across the board, white women and women of color, are far more likely uh, to be the uh, people in their families who are uh, doing much of the caregiving, you know, from uh, child care arrangements to making sure that everybody um, is, uh, you know, cared for at home to, you know, taking off time to deal with uh, um, ill relatives. Um, you know, women are, you know, far more likely to spend uh, more of their time doing that work. And, uh, you know, the data that we've seen thus far um, suggests that women um, are now doing even more of that work across the board. And there's certainly some research suggesting that, you know, women of color report that, uh, you know, they are disproportionately more likely to be doing that sort of home unpaid care work uh, than their white counterparts. So uh, uh, we we know historically that women are often the ones that people look to for caregiving, and the, the pandemic has exacerbated that dynamic. When we think about the decisions that families make uh, these last, again, three months since the pandemic began, very stressful for many families with children when schools closed and it wasn't and even daycares were not open unless you were considered an essential worker. Families had to scramble. What are we going to do? Who's going to watch our, the kids uh, when I need to go to this meeting or I need to be uh, doing this particular project? Uh, do you find that it's uh, just common that families are then thinking, well, who makes more money? And if push comes to shove, I need to maybe reduce my hours or leave a job uh, to handle the fact that a caregiving has gotten even uh, more stressful these last few months, Jocelyn. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, when your kids are out of school, uh, you really have no choice but to figure out how they're going to um, and be cared for. And as many families have learned, even if they're at home, but they are, you know, doing uh, schoolwork remotely, that still requires some level of care. And I think families make a lot of different um, judgments about mm -hmm. how best to determine who stays home or provides much of that care. It certainly um, often is an economic calculus. And uh, as we know, women generally earn lower wages than men uh, and women of color disproportionately lower wages, um, even among women. Um, so that is undoubtedly one calculus. But we also have to recognize that um, women of color in particular are uh, disproportionately more likely to be single heads of household. 
And in those situations, you sort of have no choice. Um, you know, somebody has to care for your child. And uh, if you don't have an option of, of having somebody else do it for you, um, you um, either have to leave work or if you have the luxury of being able to telework, you know, sort of juggle that work um, and a home obligation all at the same time. So, it, it, you know, it's a difficult calculation, but it's one that um, is essential in the moment. You, were, you know, you, as you point out, you have no choice. You have to mm-hmm. care for your kids. You can join our conversation. We especially want to hear from families how you've, again, divided up child care and work responsibilities, especially during this pandemic. The number 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Nadia is calling in. Nadia, what's your question or comment? Um, I am calling in to let you know that I am a woman and I am taking the responsibility of working while my ex-husband is staying at home taking care of my daughter. He is able to work remotely. He's a software developer, so he's able to work. But um, I am a warehouse worker at Amazon, so I have to go to work, and then I'm considered an essential employee. So I have to work, and also I go to school. Therefore, my husband is taking care of the family, my daughter, and he's doing a very good job at it. Well, I'm glad to, to he- I'm glad to hear that uh, you have that support, Nadia. Can I ask uh, during the pandemic? I don't know if your child was school age uh, when uh, if that impacted how your husband was able to do his job while also caring for your daughter at home. My daughter is 13 years old, and she was taking her classes remotely as well. So mm-hmm. the, my burden was reduced. Well, Nadia, thank you for calling into uh, where we live. Uh, I wanted to switch now uh, Jocelyn Fry again, who's with the Center for American Progress. We've been talking about juggling these responsibilities. But when we think about uh, caregiving, again, uh, public schools closing in the pandemic, we even heard from daycare providers who had chose to close because of health concerns. Others stayed open because they were taking care of children, of parents who were essential workers. Uh, we actually talked to Connecticut's Office of Early Childhood Commissioner Beth By recently, and she referenced her organization, which looked at how the pandemic has worsened the child care crisis in our state. This is what Commissioner By told us. According to the Center for American Progress, uh, Connecticut could lose as many as 45,000 childcare spaces as programs will struggle to first reopen and then stay open. Justin, when she told us that number, we were shocked. 45,000 child care spaces that are not there anymore for families, again, that have to work. Can you talk more about how your organization looked into these child care slots and the impact during the pandemic? Um, absolutely, and th- and thank you for much for uh, referencing uh, the important research uh, um, that my colleagues and our early childhood team have done. And uh, your you know uh, um, previous guest is absolutely right. Um, um, you know we've um, done years of research around um, access to childcare generally. Um, the number of spots that are available. There are many communities across the country that have what we call childcare deserts, where they simply don't have enough childcare slots to accommodate families. Um, and then we looked at uh, the impact of the pandemic, you know, based on the available data that we had. And, you know, there's certainly um, some estimates already of, of 
uh, upwards of uh, 300,000 uh, childcare wa- workers who've lost their jobs in the wake of this pandemic. And um, I think because of the very points that you raised about childcare programs closing and schools having to shut down, um, the pandemic has devastated the industry. Um, and in, we need to really think about serious uh, investments, both to ensure that care is available for essential workers, as you point out, who mm-hmm. need to be able to make sure their kids are taken care of. But we also need to make sure that the slots are available. And um, that will require some infusion of funding to make sure that uh, programs and uh, facilities can operate safely. You mentioned funding. I, I know the Congress in the beginning, there was uh, some money to help bolster the child care industry. But when you compare that to bailouts to, say, the airline industry, child care uh, providers didn't get as much. Absolutely. I mean, I you know, I. You know, understanding that, you know, this is an unprecedented crisis and, and there are lots of different aspects of the economy that need help. But uh, child care uh, didn't get nearly the support that they needed. Um, there was some early money, I think about $3 billion. Um, I think that's right. Um, but there's so much more that's needed to really help to rebuild the infrastructure, right? Like it's not just about um, um, sort of uh, little pieces here and there. You're going to need a, a, a significant infusion of funding that enables programs to basically rebuild themselves. They will need um, supports to make sure that they have the right equipment, that they have um, the proper distancing and reconfigure their, their the settings that they use um, to make sure that they're operating safely. Um, uh, you know, we need to be thinking about uh, bonuses for childcare workers, a, a workforce that is overwhelmingly female, disproportionately women of color, and woefully underpaid um, to make sure that they are getting this, the economic supports that they need um, at a time of crisis. So I, mm-hmm. I think we need to um, reimagine how we're thinking about uh, the interventions that are going to be necessary to provide us with the infrastructure um, that is essential for us to be able to function as a society. And one of them is making sure that we have the programs available to make sure our kids are cared mm-hmm. for. We wanted to hear from a child care provider in our state. Joining us by phone now is LaToya Brown-Clayton. She's a family child care provider in Hartford, Connecticut. LaToya, are you there? I am. Good morning. Thank you for Good. having me. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you have a a full household and you're taking time to talk with us. So we appreciate that. I mentioned that you're a family child care provider. So you provide professional child care to a small group of children inside your home. So what was it like when the pandemic first started and the governor issued his stay at home order? Did you consider shutting down? Um, I consider shutting down several times um, between March and April. But I have essential worker parents, so I couldn't shut down. Um, I I asked them several times, do you need me? Can I close? Can I? No. My parents work for um, group homes and um, private care um, clients, so I couldn't shut down. Warehouse workers, Home Depot, mm-hmm. couldn't shut down. I went from having six babies in a house to nine and then april four because parents can afford it anymore Mm -hmm. 
When you mentioned uh, essential workers, at, at any point were you worried about uh, taking in children whose parents uh, may have contracted uh, coronavirus and not knowing it? Yes, um, but the, the the good thing about my parents and our relationship is uh, they would tell me. I had one family that she directly dealt with um, coronavirus um, patients, and she just stopped coming. Period. Um, she said, "I can't, I can't put you at risk anymore. So I'm going to stop coming, and my family is going to take care of the baby." And she didn't see her baby for six weeks or six to eight weeks Mm -hmm. because she was in contact with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about how you're able to stay open financially? You mentioned that the number of children that you are taking care of has fluctuated. I imagine that the parents uh, who you're helping provide childcare, uh, their hours and and pay may have fluctuated as well. Uh, How much of a burden has this been on you, Latoya? Um, Coming... I'm I'm the breadwinner in my house, so I had to learn how to budget um, to my best of my abilities. Um, I have bills that's piled up, but I still have kids I need to take care of also, and my family. Um, parents that that only takes um, subsidies, care for kids, that's the only thing they could offer. So they had to decrease their numbers and I had to go, I had to figure it out. Mm. That's really difficult. So you know that your parents uh, are, are handling uh, some difficult financial uh, issues and then you too are trying to decide, well, how do I provide for my family? Uh, As you're moving forward and continuing to care for children, what would you like to see from the state of Connecticut in terms of helping childcare providers like yourself? So the best, the best way to help us is through professional development that we don't have to pay for, through helping our families that, that, that needs um, care within the week. So it takes, it, 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 it takes 45 days, up to 45 days for Care for Kids just to say, you're approved. So us as providers, we're waiting 45 days to get paid because parents can't afford enrollment fees. Parents can't afford to bring me a box of diapers and a box of wipes. So sometimes I have to go out and go buy these things. I have to go out and go buy food because parents are bringing in chips and cookies and candy and they're bouncing off the walls. And I'm like, this, this, I can't have this. So Mm -hmm. all that is coming out of my pocket to, to reopen. We need, we, we need operation costs upfront operation costs. Mm-hmm. Um, well, parents, are, parents are calling in right now mm-hmm. to get back in. And when I tell them how much I cost, now care, care has went up. Mm-hmm. And they're just like screaming, like, what do you mean you're charging this much now? I mm-hmm. have to. Yeah. You've mentioned Care for Kids a few times. Again, that's a, a subsidy from the state uh, to help yeah. uh, pay uh, some of the child care costs. Uh, LaToya, uh, just stay on the line for one second. I wanted to have uh, Jocelyn Fry respond to what you're telling uh, us about what you're dealing with. And again, this is just in Connecticut. We're not even talking about uh, nationwide how child care providers are struggling uh, to help families while also figuring out how they're going to pay the bills, Jocelyn. 
Um, well, I, I think your guest, uh, Latoya, you know, really has hit the nail on the head and her experiences here uh, in, in, in uh, Connecticut are, are the experiences of many uh, child care uh, providers across the country. And there are a couple of things that she said that I thought were really important. One is that essential workers need access to care. They really should have the ability to um, get access subsidies so they get that care um, without additional cost because these are extraordinary times and that that those subsidies should go quickly to the providers um, um, like your guest. Um, at the same time, there is needed a significant infusion of resources so that providers um, can uh, do what they need to do to make sure that they are um, adequately uh, creating an environment that is safe. Um, that has the, 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 the protective gear that they need um, and that they can, you know, safely operate in a way that is um, effective for them and their, uh, and their kids. And then the last thing I would say is that what we know um, even before the pandemic is that childcare is expensive um, and uh, we already were in need of a national response to really um, addressing the rising cost of childcare, but at the same time, making sure that providers themselves are given more resources and child care workers are, wages are raised um, so that they are actually being paid, you know, the, an accurate value of, of their worth. And so your guest has really touched on, uh, you know, several pieces that, you know, collectively need to be addressed if we're really going to make sure that um, the child care industry is operating the way we need. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank uh, LaToya Brown-Clayton for calling in again, a family child care provider in Hartford. LaToya, we thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. And Jocelyn Fry, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. Uh, you've said a lot of the things that we should definitely consider, and it would be nice to follow up with some of our uh, policy leaders in our state uh, to see uh, how uh, they can help uh, deal with some of the issues we've talked about. We thank you, Jocelyn, for joining the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to get an update on the rollout of Connecticut's paid family leave. Is this something you've been looking forward to? We're going to hear more about uh, what's the latest. And you can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our Future of Work series continues tomorrow, talking about work-life balance. What's that? We'll talk more about it tomorrow. Uh, Joining us now on Zoom is Andrea Barton-Reeves, CEO of the Connecticut Paid Family and Medical Leave Insurance Authority. Andrea, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, we know that uh, the Connecticut General Assembly and Governor Lamont uh, put this into a law, I believe, last year. Now, when we think about paid family leave, uh, dealing with the COVID-19 public health crisis, this kind of benefit for state residents is needed now more than ever. So can you tell us the latest on the rollout? Where do we stand? Sure. So I started in my role on March 2nd. So it's been a little over 90 days, probably getting closer to 100. And we've been doing a lot of things during that time period. There uh, is a lot of work to be done. So to stand up the authority, and that includes writing all the internal regulations 
informing uh, the public and key stakeholders about the progress that we're making uh, and getting the system built that will collect the employee contributions that will fund the trust fund that we will eventually all be able to access in 2022. So during all of that time, that's the, the last the last 100 days. That's really what we've been doing. We've been doing everything from uh, opening that trust account where all the employee contributions will go to uh, starting our opportunities to connect with key stakeholders through webinars since we cannot all gather uh, together for quite some time to just let employers and employees and caregivers know more about the paid family and medical leave law, how it works and what they can expect. So tell us more again, uh, again, who is eligible for this in the state of Connecticut? I know there's some employees that are exempt. And then in terms of the contributions from and people working in the state of Connecticut, how much we're talking about from coming from their pay? Sure. So those that are eligible are employees. And if you are an employer and you have one or more people working for you, then the statute requires that you participate in the plan. It's also open to sole proprietors and self-employed individuals who can opt in. And if they do, then the statute asks that you remain in the plan for three years. The people who are generally accepted from participation are those who work for municipalities, Mm -hmm. non-public and uh, elementary and secondary schools, uh, state employees generally, with just some exceptions for those who may be in some bargaining units or other job classifications. Your contribution is capped at one half of 1% of your wages, and that number is even capped at what is what's known as the Social Security contribution rate. And that fluctuates based on what the federal government sets it at, but right now it's a, it's a little under $138,000. So you would be capped at that, and you'd pay one half of 1% into that fund, and that would be done over 26 pay periods. Uh, because most people are paid bi-weekly. If you're paid mm-hmm. weekly, uh, you're still contributing to the fund. Uh, before this was passed, uh, no one saw this pandemic coming. And now that we're talking about, again, the rolling out uh, starting in January in terms of how uh, this employee trust fund will roll out and then 2021 when the employee-employer contributions begin, uh, is there any concern that uh, this is going to impact small businesses more because they're also dealing with the uh, having to let go of workers and dealing with uh, finances because of the pandemic? Don't know if I would characterize it as a concern. I think mm-hmm. I, we are, we at the authority are extraordinarily cognizant, of course, mm-hmm. uh, about what's happening. You would really, I think, have to be insensitive and, and somewhat tone deaf to what's happening in our community and around the world to say that there wouldn't be any impact on the way in, in which we would either roll out the program or be sensitive to, especially small employers who have never had any interaction with family and medical leave generally, rather mm-hmm. whether paid or unpaid, because the law applied primarily to those who had 75 employees or more. Most small businesses don't have that number of employees. Some do, but mm-hmm. our statistics tell us that most don't. So it's really a double whammy. They're having to learn how to navigate a new law that had never been applicable to them and then understand how the paid leave portion of that works. So what I would say, Lucy, is that 
we're taking a very careful and measured approach to make sure that we are sensitive to the way in which this impacts businesses. I am in contact with uh, the governor's office and my boss happens to be the chief, the chief, the state's chief operating officer. So I am speaking with the executive branch and with our key stakeholders about what would really make sense as we roll it out. We don't want to create a, an additional burden or problem for businesses throughout the state. And so these conversations are continuing. Uh, maybe in part of that conversation would be, would it make sense to push back a date for when employees and employers start contributing? Would that be something that would be on the table? I think that that, among other options, are on the table. You know, are there are there uh, other options that other states who may not be as far, who are farther along, some of the things that they may have done? Are there other ways to structure um, some part of the program based on other factors? So there, I wouldn't sit here today and say, yes, that's absolutely what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. But all of those options are, are things that are being discussed and considered. Mm -hmm. Clearly, as I said, we don't want to be a burden to businesses. Mm -hmm. At the same time, again, with this COVID-19 crisis, uh, uh, people having the peace of mind knowing that if this program begins time and, and uh, is implemented um, as it was uh, written, that people have peace of mind that they're not going to lose their job if a relative or a family member gets sick or if they are um, having a new child or adopting a child, that they have that security. That's why this program is so important to have for our state. That's exactly right. So it, in this and in this exact time in which we are, we really have uh, two almost competing interests that are happening. On the one hand is the one that you articulated, which is we're in the middle of a pandemic. Might it make sense to rethink the way in which it was rolled out when the statute was written and passed? And on the other end of that is this extreme sense of urgency that there, there, do, there does need to be more support and uh, and paid family medical leave really can't roll out fast enough. So my job really <laughs> is to be right, is to really be in the middle of that and to create a balance. And that's why I said that you know rather than say to you today we have one solid solution, it's really looking at how to to balance those interests, which I don't think are competing interests. They are interests sort of mm -hmm. in the same sphere of providing safety net and supports. And as I was listening to you speak to both uh, Jocelyn and, and Carlene, you know, I understand the pressure, particularly that women are under. We know that the, that most caregivers who either leave their jobs or step back from mm -hmm. them are, are women. So our role here at the authorities to be very, very sensitive mm -hmm. to the needs that caregivers have and yeah. to be available for them. Andrea, um, thank you so much for joining well. us today. Andrea Barton-Reeves again, uh, Connecticut Paid Family Medical Leave Insurance Authority. This is where we live.